0: One of the best ways to keep up with church life is through the City Life app. The City Life app enables you to listen to messages from Sunday, explore the Bible while listening to messages, stay up to date with church life through our Connect section, and much more. Download the City Life app in the App Store or Google Play Store today. Welcome to the City Life Podcast. We're all about making Jesus known. We pray these messages will help equip you to become a follower of Jesus, who is empowered to influence and shape culture. Enjoy the message. What is church? Is it a building? With some pews? A piano? And stained glass? Or is it something more? 2,000 years ago, the church was born. It wasn't made up of the famous, the rich, or the powerful. It was made up of everyday people who passionately believed in the message of Jesus. It was the beginning of a revolution of love and freedom that would change the world forever. In 369 AD, the church built the first hospital as a place to care for those who cannot care for themselves. Today, the church is the largest single provider of health care in history. The church was the first to stand up for the rights of children creating the first and largest orphanage system in the world. 100 out of the first 110 universities in America were founded as Christian institutions. Places like Harvard, Dartmouth, Yale, and Princeton. Much of the world's greatest art, architecture, literature, and music has been shaped by the church. But the impact of the church isn't just ancient history. Today, the church is stronger than ever and continues to impact every corner of the world. Over 300,000 churches in America and almost 5 million churches around the world stand ready to be instruments of change, to do what governments could never do. Every day, the church brings food and fresh water to millions of people across the world. It has a renewed passion to help widows and orphans and fights to free slaves in every part of the world. It stands ready as a first responder on the scene to provide relief for victims of disaster. The ripple of Jesus' impact can be clearly seen and felt in the church today. made up of people like me, and you. Today, you didn't just come to a building. You came to a revolution 2,000 years in the making. The world is facing as much trouble as ever. But we are not afraid. We were created for such a time as this. We will continue to do what we've always done. Proclaim the message of Jesus to help a world that needs him so desperately. Welcome, 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 welcome to church. church. Um, that is terminology that means a lot of different things to different people, doesn't it? Uh, some people think of the church as being a building, but it's not. But what the church is, it's this radically diverse group of people from all around the world um, they're from every culture, every nation, and, and these are people that over the past 2,000 years have experienced the love and life changing power of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, we are the church. The church is also referred to as the bride of Jesus Christ. Today I'm going to talk about the church. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to perform a wedding ceremony over in Dallas, and I performed uh, Andrew and Anastasia's wedding, and it was awesome. It was awesome. The chilly air didn't feel as cold as I thought it might feel, and, and uh, it, it was an amazing time. But during the ceremony, r- right, right during the ceremony, my mind drifted for just a moment from that, and I, 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 I came to this, this reminder in my head a Christian that, that, that a marriage... In fact, the reason God gave us marriage is so that we would understand what it means for a groom to love a bride, and that's how Jesus loves us, that Jesus loves his bride, and he accepts her even with her flaws. That's the love of God in the church, which is like marriage. Today I'm sharing another one of my messages from my Real Questions series. Over the past three years, oh, every few weeks or so, what I'll do is I'll share one of these messages uh, that addresses a question that that pops up in our culture quite a bit. It may be a question that you have. That's very likely today's question is a question that you have been asked before. Uh, So my goal today is to address this very real question, but it's for your benefit to hear and understand but it's also to equip you to be able to help answer others and the question is this why does the church the church cause so much injustice a couple of weeks ago 15 days ago actually there was this massacre in a jewish synagogue and um broke my heart we prayed for for them here we held a, a service at the synagogue uh, attended by about a 1,000 people um, on Thursday of that week. And, but but the, the day after the event, I noticed that a friend of mine on social media, a friend from the community, had posted that the, that, that the reason for this atrocity is the history of anti-Semitism by Christians. And, and this lady was really indirectly saying the cause of this was the church. Of course, I, I didn't agree with that. I don't agree with that statement, uh, and, 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 but those are a lot of the feelings and beliefs of people around us. Why is that the case? Well, because most people who stand up against Christianity, they do so because they have some sort of personal disappointment with a Christian or a group of Christians or a church or churches. So basically it works like this. If you have known uh, wise and loving and kind Christians and you've seen churches that are solid in their belief and that care about the community and that are generous, you would probably think of the church as being wholesome and valuable, right? But on the other hand, if most of your interactions or your experiences have been with what I would call nominal Christians, people who say they're followers of Jesus but don't really practice their faith, or possibly uh, another extreme, which would be maybe self-righteous, intolerant kind of fanatics, you know, then you would likely see Christians as being extreme. So I'm going to take this head on today. Uh, I'm going to address the behavior of individual Christians as well as the churches who have even undermined the perspective of Christianity for a lot of people. There are really three different, um, three different observations. These are these are negative observations of Christians, and I just want to show these to you here. The first one is character flaws, because uh, character flaws in Christians, and and you know it's it's real. Uh, there's this question that hey, if Christianity is truth, then why are there so many non-Christians who even live better lives than Christians? Let's take that on today. Another one is war and violence. Um, the, the, the thought is that if Christianity is true, then why has the institutional church supported war and injustice and violence for centuries? Well, good. Let's take that on today. Here's another one, fanaticism and even intolerance. I mean, if, if Christian teaching, even if the Christian teaching has a lot to offer and it's a good thing, then why would anyone want to be associated with smug, self righteous? and possibly even intolerant people? Good question. We're going to take that on today. Are you guys ready? All right, let's have a little bit of fun, but we're going to do this with intelligence. First of all, I want to take a look at this this first observation I have. and It's the observation that Christians have character flaws. Now, I know no one in this room has a character flaw, right? Okay, good. That's a joke, all right? But earlier I stated this. The church is like the bride. Of Jesus Christ. Now, as, as married men, do you have a perfect, flawless bride? And most of us would say, yeah, absolutely, we would. But the truth is, we know different. But but we see her that way. It's because we love her, right? Yeah. And you love your wife, nonetheless. That's just how it works between Jesus and us. Because in the same way, the bride of Jesus Christ, which is the church, is loved Unconditionally, by Jesus and us as individuals, I mean any anyone can see flaws in the lives of ever Christians I mean you can but why the question would be is at the same time, do we see non- Christians not having some of those flaws well, I mean I know a lot of people would say wouldn't it be great if, if Christians uh, as a whole would be significantly better than everyone else? That is part of the reasoning that's out there but Let's look at this with intelligence. If that line of reasoning were to be true, um, you have to know that it's not based upon anything that's in the Bible. See, Christianity teaches something quite opposite in that line of re- uh, reasoning. First of all, let me explain this. Christians, we have something that we believe in, and it's known as common grace. This is a little education here. It's from James one seventeen, 17 the primary scripture on this, which says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. What that means, this is this is called theology. <laughs> That's a big word there. But this what this means is that no matter who performs it. Every single act of goodness and wisdom and justice and beauty originated with God. Why? It's because God is gracious and He just loves to give out good gifts. That's our God. Gifts like wisdom and talent and beauty and skills. And God gives those gifts to people all over the world in an unmerited way, whether they worship Him or not. See, God releases those gifts across all of humanity. It doesn't matter about a person's religious conviction, their race, their gender, or any other attributes. And God does this to brighten and to enrich the world that He created. Christianity itself my faith also speaks of the seriously flawed character of christians did you know that see a central message of the bible is this we can only have a relationship with god by sheer grace Um, all of our efforts are way too feeble and falsely motivated to ever earn or merit salvation we believe also in something else, and that's a kind of big word. Preston actually used it last week. It's called sanctification. What that means is, is that we are in a continual state of growth in our character and changes in our behavior. But this is also a very gradual process that begins after a person becomes a Christian. So so here's the, here's the truth. This is Christianity. It's this, is that all Christians, you, me, everyone, we are all a work in progress. So, so the, the mistaken belief that a person has to clean up and even perfect his or her own life to be good enough for God, that's not even Christianity. That's other religions. Therefore, authentic Christian churches, if they're really Christian churches, they will always be filled with broken people, flawed people who still have a long way to go emotionally, morally, and spiritually. The church... Is like a hospital. It's not a museum of the perfection. So so the argument that Christianity should be rejected because followers of Jesus have character flaws, that doesn't even hold water according to our own faith. Here's the second observation: is that religion incites Violence the, the question is, does Orthodox religion in general, regardless of what it is, does it inevitably lead to some type of violence? And now, that idea is taught in our schools and universities. I was taught that, so let's deal with that. In his book, "God is Not Great: How Religion Poisons Everything." Christopher Hitchens, he says this. He says, religion is not unlike racism. One version of it inspires and provokes the other. Religion has been an enormous multiplier of tribal suspicion and hatred. And at first glance, that may seem to be true. The truth is, even Christian-oriented nations have institutionalized um, imperialism and violence and oppression uh, through, through the Inquisition as well as the African slave trade. Also, though, the Japanese empire of World War II grew out of a culture that was affected and impacted by Buddhism and Shintoism. Islam is actually the birthing place of today's, the vast majority of today's terrorism. Hindu nationalists, in the name of their religion, they carry out these bloody strikes against Christian churches and Muslim mosques. So there is evidence that seems to indicate that religion aggravates human differences until they boil over into war and violence and then the oppression of minorities. But I also have to say, let's be intelligent. There are some serious problems with that very, very narrow view. There's something called the communist Russians, the communist Chinese. How about the communist Cambodian regimes? that I saw is very, very evidenced in the 20th century. They completely rejected every organized religion and any type of belief in God. See, these societies were actually all rational, and they were fully secular, and every single one of them produced massive violence against its own people without the influence of any religion. Why? Well... Here's what, I, here's what I feel. I believe that when the idea of God is gone and there's a vacuum there, uh, a society will try to trans, just, just make anything, something else uh, wonderful, something else is going to become God to them. They have to do this to feel morally and spiritually superior. That's just going to happen. The Marxists, they exalted the state. The, uh, the Nazis exalted race. That was their religion. Now, violence in the name of Christianity, though, it is a terrible reality. I will admit that. And it absolutely must be addressed by those cultures. And there is no excusing it ever. But in this last century, violence has been inspired as much by secularism as by religion. So societies who rid themselves of all religion have been just as oppressive as those steeped in Religion, So we can only conclude then that there is some force of violence that's deeply rooted in humans' hearts and souls. And it expresses itself regardless of what a person believes or even what the society may believe. So ultimately violence, violence in a society cannot be absolutely inspired by religious beliefs of that society. Let's take a third, third observation. That Christians are fanatics, and intolerant. Now, this is the one that hits home to most of us, because just about everybody, you have a friend or a relative or someone that you know became born again, and they just didn't seem to go off the deep end. You know what I'm talking about? They're all about declaring their disapproval of a different group or a sector of society, and and, uh, and, and, when they discuss their faith, they come across as being very intolerant and self-righteous. Here's the challenge. Many people try to understand Christianity from this, this, this spectrum, uh, the spectrum of, of, of nominalism at one end, and uh, let's call it fanaticism at the other end see, nominal Christians at one end, uh, that would be a person who is Christian in name only, and they don't practice their faith. Uh, they don't even really hardly even believe it. They're just, eh, yeah, I'm a Christian, okay? At the opposite extreme are what I would call fanatical Christians. Now, a fanatic is someone who is thought to, like, over-believe or over-practice their, their faith, their Christianity, but, but I actually prefer to call a person like that an intense Christian, okay? See, now, you know, the onlookers, reason that really the best kind of Christian is not one on either extreme but it's someone who's kind of in the middle and you have probably been told that it's very prevalent in our society someone who doesn't go all the way with it but someone who believes it but isn't like too crazy devoted to it see the the problem with this approach is that it assumes that Christianity is basically a form of moral improvement. That's why many people in our culture will say, I need to go to church so I can be a better person. But that's not the purpose. You see, intense Christians, therefore, should become intense moralists. Or at the same time, uh, we'd have to say they were pretty much like the people that were around at Jesus' time, which were called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, let me tell you about them, they were an outspoken group of people. They were deeply religious, but they usually missed the mark. Um, People like this, they assume... They're okay with God because of their moral behavior and their good deeds and their solid understanding of the Bible and what they stand up for. And and, and I'm telling you guys though, all those things are good. Okay. Those are good things, but we don't become right before God because of those things. You see, if a person believes that, that these outward things make them more righteous, then their attitudes, those attitudes that they have in their heart will tend to lead toward Feelings of superiority and arrogance toward those who do not share their intensity. (laughs) Those superior attitudes then can lead to abuse, exclusion, and oppression. I've seen it. Some of you have as well. So, what if instead the heart of Christianity is something that we would just simply call salvation by God's grace? In other words, We are made righteous before God, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And that belief creates something very different in us. It causes us to be humble, not arrogant. Here's what I think. I, I just think that people who are fanatics are so extreme because they're not, not because they're too committed to the gospel, but to be honest with you, it's because they're not committed to the gospel enough. Paul said it this way. He said, salvation is never a reward for good works or human striving. Think of some of the people that you would consider to be fanatical. Um, Possibly they are overbearing, uh, self-righteous, opinionated, and insensitive, and even harsh. Why? It can't be because they are too Christian. You see? Because if you were too Christian, yes, you I mean you would be courageous and zealous, but at the same time, you would be fanatically humble, sensitive, loving, empathetic, forgiving, and understanding, just like Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the one who said to the extremists who are wanting to execute, to stone a woman to death for adultery, he said, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to stone her. They all left. Who is left is Jesus, the one without sin. So he picked up a stone and did what? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. See, extremism, which leads to injustice, truth is it's a constant danger within any type of religion. But, But as followers of Jesus Christ, the antidote is not to tone down or to moderate our faith, but it is to grasp a fuller and truer faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you can very simply rest in the grace of Jesus and you don't have to strive. Jesus himself is the one who conducts the biggest critique of our own faith. Did you know that? He did. He he did the biggest. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, go read it on your own later on, he doesn't at all criticize the non-religious folks. Do you know what he's doing? He's criticizing the religious people. Jesus, this, okay, hold on for a second. Listen, hear me out. Jesus literally criticizes people who pray and give to the poor and seek to live according to the scriptures. But he says they're doing so because they want to gain attention and to get power for themselves. See, Jesus criticized them because what they're doing is they're trying to use their good deeds as leverage over people yeah. and even leverage over God Himself because of their spiritual performance. See, this causes then a person to become judgmental and condemning, uh, very quick to give criticism, and even unwilling to accept any kind of criticism themselves. (laughs) So that would become an intolerant fanatic. You understand what I'm talking about? An intense Christian. See, in the teachings of Jesus, he continually says to the respectable and to the upright religious people, He says, truly I tell you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to enter the kingdom of God ahead of you. Jesus continually uh, condemns, and sometimes in some very, very colorful language, legalism, self-righteousness, and bigotry, and the love of money, and the love of power. He comes after it all. Luke 11, you know what he says to the religious people? He says, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. The cup and the dish, meaning them. (laughs) You neglect justice and the love of God. He says, you load people down with burdens that they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. And he says, you devour widows' houses, and for a show, you make long prayers. Wow. That's in the Bible. That's Jesus, the biggest critic of our own faith. It's quite beautiful, isn't it? Here's the truth. God can't be manipulated into loving you more by your religious and moral performance. God can only be reached through, the, through repentance. And repentance is this. It's a giving up of power. <laughs> and, and if we are saved by sheer grace, then we can only then become grateful, willing servants of God and, and servants of other people around us. See, it's Jesus who said this to his followers, his disciples. He says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first needs to be the slave of all. The slave of all. whoa. Uh, in the critique of Jesus regarding our own faith, uh, self righteous religion is always, always marked by an insensitivity, uh, an, an, an insensitivity to the issues of justice of the people around them. While at the same time, true faith is marked by profound concern for the poor and the marginalized. Do you know that God so identifies with the poor? That our treatment of the poor equals our treatment of God? Alms is one of those four ways that we give. And I was talking about the four different types earlier. One of those ways that we can do that is in right now with this food drive. When you come to church tonight, bring something. If you forgot something, you run over to Walgreens and grab some food. Let's fill this place up. Let's be honest about our. I, I want to be honest about my faith. I don't want I don't, I to don't play religious games, do you? I, I'm just not into that. Because, but, but then think about this. Even the strongest secular critics against the followers of Jesus Christ, they are actually only using resources to attack us that are found in our faith. Okay, so, so to illustrate this, I want to uh, talk to you for, about it from a guy whose name, he's a historian, his name is John C. Somerville, and he invited his students to do this thought, equivalent, this thought experiment, and so what he did is he explained the pre-Christian European tribes, northern European tribes, like the Anglo-Saxons, they had societies based upon something called honor. Okay, This was a shame-based culture. See, it was a culture in which earning and insisting upon and demanding respect from other people was paramount above everything else. Now, when the Christian monks moved into the area and they began to try to convert them into this, to a different set of values, which they called charity, which means wanting the best for other people, that created a conflict. So, to see this difference, uh, what, what uh, Dr. Somerville did is he asked his students to imagine seeing a little old lady coming down the street carrying a big purse. So, she's carrying this big purse and she's going down the street. And an uh, and honor shame culture, he says, what they would do is they, because, because they don't believe in picking on the weak, They wouldn't wouldn't mess with her because you pick on the weak, you're a despicable person, and then nobody would respect you, and you couldn't even respect yourself. Now, that's actually the honor-shame-based culture, but that attitude and that ethic is actually self-promoting because all it is, it's focusing upon how the action is going to affect your honor and your reputation. That's not even Christianity, although it's proclaimed in our land quite a bit. There is, however, the Christian train of thought. He says, how would you imagine how much it would hurt to be mugged and how the loss of money from that purse might harm the people that are depending upon her and depending upon what's in that purse and to depend on her? So you wouldn't take the money from her because you want the best for her. And you want the best for her dependence. You see, that is an outward-focused, other-regarding ethic because you are thinking completely about her and not about your reputation. See, over the years, Dr. Somerville, he he did this experiment, and he found the vast overwhelming majority of his students, they reasoned that the second other-regarding ethic was the one to live by. And then what he did is he said, do you realize <laughs> that your moral values are Christian? Christianity has shaped those honor-based cultures where pride was valued above humility, where dominance was valued above service, where courage was valued above, above peacefulness, and glory was, was preferred above modesty. Loyalty to your own tribe was preferred rather than having equal respect for all people. You see, because when the Anglo-Saxons first heard the gospel, they were very, very resistant to it because they couldn't see how a society could even survive if they didn't have fear and intimidation, respect, strength, and honor. But follow me, when they did convert, they weren't consistent. They tended to merge their values with some of the Christian other regarding ethics and they mixed up some of these values which has been the way over and over and over again when cultures begin to adopt christianity so they supported the crusades as a way of protecting god's honor and their honor at the same time as they begin to turn to god they let the monks and the women and the serfs cultivate the charitable values while they felt like well this is not appropriate for us to cultivate those values because we are men of honor and action No no wonder there is so much to condemn in church history. But those people were in transition, Uh, just like you are. Remember, all followers of Jesus are what? A work in progress. And if we abandon Christianity as our opponents wish we would, then we wouldn't have any basis for the criticism of our faith because it is Christian. (laughs) The answer is not to abandon Christianity because society will then no longer have the standards and the resources to make the corrections. It's the Bible itself that taught us about the abuses of our faith. It's the Bible that taught us about what we're supposed to do about it when we see it. For example, one of the deep stains upon Christianity is the African slave trade. Uh, Since Christianity was dominant... In the nations that bought and sold slaves during that time, the churches bear much of the responsibility, and I would even say most of the responsibility. I have no problem admitting that. Even though slavery in some form was virtually universal around every Christian culture for centuries, it was Christians, though, who came to the first conclusion that slavery was wrong. Did you know that? Christian activists, William Wilberforce in Great Britain, John Woolman in America. These men devoted their entire lives in the name of Jesus to ending slavery. Slavery was abolished because it was morally wrong. And history says the followers of Jesus were the first leaders in saying so. You see, Christianity's self-correcting apparatus that's built into our faith and its critique of of, of religiously supported acts of violence and injustice, it asserted itself and it worked. Here's another example. The civil rights movement in the mid-20th century. uh, It was not primarily a political movement. It was a religious movement that grabbed political attention demanding action. That is history. When Martin Luther King Jr. confronted racism in the white church in the South, he didn't call upon the Southern churches to be more rational and to be more secular, did he? No. He invoked the moral law of God and the scriptures, and he boldly called upon white Christians, in fact, white pastors, to be more true to their own beliefs and to realize what the Bible really teaches. He he, he didn't say, well, all truth is relative and everyone is free to determine what's right or wrong for themselves. If he would have, the civil rights movement wouldn't have happened. If everything is relative, there would be no incentive for the white people to give up their power for slavery to end. What Dr. King did is he quoted the prophet Amos he says, let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. And the greatest champion of justice in our era, he knew that the antidote to racism was not less Christianity, but deeper and truer Christianity. See, when people have committed injustice in the name of Jesus, they are not being true to Jesus himself because Jesus himself was a victim of injustice. And even though when he was a victim of injustice, he called upon the people who were delivering that injustice to him to be forgiven. He says, forgive your enemies. You see, when people give their lives to liberate others as Jesus did, they're actually truly recognizing real Christianity, the kind that Dr. King and William Wilberforce literally gave their lives for. Church, This is my faith. I am a Christian. I'm saved by God's grace. I am 100% forgiven, not because of anything that I've done. And I'm continually being changed to simply be more like Jesus. That's Christianity. Will you join me? because eternity does really hang in the balance. I'd like for there to be no movement at this time, and I want us to focus internally, please. Because you might be here today, and your eyes are being opened to the beauty of what Jesus did for you. Maybe you've never really completely surrendered your life to Jesus. Possibly you're here today and you've drifted from a relationship with God and you're even in this atmosphere and you're just feeling the conviction of God even when we were singing and worshiping. Worship was so beautiful. If you want to know this Jesus that I talk about, you want a new beginning, you want to give your life to him, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. It's going to be very simple. It's just by lifting your hand. That way I can connect my faith with yours Knowing this is that Jesus loves you more than you can imagine, and he died for you so that you can have eternity, so you can live to ever, forever. And today, now, this is the time to live. So if you want to be included in this closing prayer, surrender your life to Jesus. I'm going to ask you to lift your hand at the count of three so that I can see it and connect my faith with you. Will you do so? One, two, three. Lift your hand for me, please. Just lift your hand for me. Thank you. Who else? Who else? Who else? You guys can put your hands down. And here's what I'm going to ask that we do. If you lifted your hand, I'm going to ask you, as well as every other person in this room, to please stand. Please stand. Please stand. And I want you to pray these words with me. If you lifted your hand, pray these words with me. Believers, I want you to pray it as well, even as a reaffirmation of your faith. Pray these words. Dear Jesus. Thank you for dying for my sins. I believe you're the son of God. Today, I give up my past and I embrace the future that you have for me. Thank you for your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's message. You know, City Life Church, we are all about developing followers of Jesus who influence and shape culture, and it's possible that you are even feeling a a shift that is coming in your life, or possibly deep down inside you feel called to something more, and City Life might be a part of that future. Let me tell you, Launch Sunday is the big event that's coming up, and it's happening on February 10th, 2019. And if you'd really like to be a part of what God is doing in downtown Fort Worth through City Life Church, I'm asking you to go and visit our website at citylifefw.org and click the Launch button. Uh, you could also just come and visit one of our services because I, I really believe the future is bright and it's limitless in potential. I want you to hear my vision. I want you to be a part of what God is doing at City Life and come and chat with me personally after one of the services.